Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Uncle Sam Abroad, a new geopolitics podcast that looks at American foreign policy issues, American diplomacy, and the ways in which the United States projects its power. It's important to note that we have absolutely no affiliation and absolutely no agenda apart from rational discussion. The reason for launching the podcast was very simple. The more that we, as Americans, know about American foreign policy, the better. And that same logic applies when it comes to knowing about our country's military posture out in the world. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Where exactly should we be focusing our efforts and why? What are we getting right and where do we excel? Perhaps more importantly, what are we getting wrong and where do we lag behind in comparison to our adversaries? Those questions were always highly relevant in the first place, but they're even more relevant now with Russia having just sparked a war in Eastern Europe. So. In today's episode, we'll be looking through a military lens. We'll be talking about geopolitical risks that face the United States and U.S. interests and how the U.S. might confront those risks, or at the very least, try to mitigate them. Our guest is Brian Clark. Brian is currently director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at Hudson Institute, a prominent think tank in Washington. Originally from Idaho, he served in the U.S. Navy for 25 years and was the chief engineer of not one, but two nuclear submarines. He served two tours inside those nuclear subs with each tour lasting three years. According to his official bio, he is an expert in naval operations, electronic warfare, military competitions, and wargaming. Brian has led official studies on, quote, new technologies and the future of warfare, end quote, for the Secretary of Defense, as well as for DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Products Agency which is basically the tip of the spear for U.S. military research and development. He's based in Washington, D.C., but happens to be speaking with us today from Austin, Texas. Brian, thanks very much for being here. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here with you. So, obviously, right now, the current situation with Russia attacking Ukraine is the geopolitical event that's happening. And so I'm guessing that'll factor into your answer, at least partially here. But broadly, what do you think should be America's top three or four strategic priorities overseas? Yeah, Greg, I think uh, it's good to step back a little bit from the current confrontation in Ukraine and kind of remember what it is that the U.S. needs to be focusing on uh, more broadly and then over the longer term, because that's really where a lot of the Defense Department's investments and um, effort goes you know, towards these longer term uh, objectives. Uh, so clearly, Russia and its aggression against Eastern European neighbors is going to continue. This is not something that's a a short-term you know, uh, initiative. So they're going to continue their operations against Ukraine. They're going to have designs on other Eastern European countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union. So that's, that's one of the top, but I would say it is not the top uh, concern the United States has. I think the top concern the U.S. has is being able to deter um, a, a pure competitor like China uh, and dissuade China from a path of aggression that looks like what Russia is doing today. Um, and then secondarily to deal with Russia as a, as a near peer competitor, um, that's clearly more aggressive, more willing to take risks than China has been. Uh, so those are really the two big looming sec- national security challenges. And I think, you know, although this you know, b- becomes a somewhat partisan talking point, but I do think that climate change is something the Defense Department is going to have to wrap its arms around in terms of what are the national security implications of it. There's many studies that have been done on this idea, but I think uh, we're starting to see the actual fruits of, of, na- of, the, of the dynamic uh, in the climate right now playing out, you know, in terms of migrations, in terms of impacts on infrastructure. 
uh, and in, in terms of the impacts on the Defense Department's ability to pursue operations the way it has. So, for example, you know, things like fossil fuels are going to be deprioritized in future investments. So I think you know, that's something the Defense Department's going to have to wrap its arms around. It's, that is a longer-term concern. So to me, those are really the top, you know, kind of three things. Um, then Iran and the Middle East, I think, you know, the U.S. has to sort of figure out, are we going to uh, play a role of uh, sort of helping to facilitate the more favorable balance of power? Meaning, are we going to take the Abraham Accords, move those forward and uh, establish what we consider to be like a Israeli Arab alliance uh, that then is going to counterbalance Iran and kind of leave that as the the dynamic in the Middle East without ourselves getting you know, enmeshed too much in the region, um, which means there's going to be some messiness and we have to be willing to accept that messiness. That's why I see North Korea and the Middle East as being maybe these, these management issues, whereas I see you know, Russia and China and maybe climate change as three things that the U.S. has to really come up with some initiatives to pursue proactively. I see. Yeah, and I want to come back to Iran. Um, based on the written commentary that you produce and on the detailed recommendations that you make regarding things like military readiness and military technology. What do you see the U.S. Defense Department doing right, doing well in terms of force projection? And then on the flip side, where would you say we're lacking? So I'd say you know, what we've, uh, what the U.S. military has gotten very good at over the years is being able to do traditional military deployments overseas and sustain those for extended periods of time. So those are the kinds of things that the U.S. military does well. The issue with the, with Russia and China is not so much that they are capable militaries with you know relatively formidable technological bases, which they are. It's also that they've embraced this new approach to warfare that gives them so many tools at lower levels of escalation that they're able to achieve their objectives without really us um, being able to counter them. It really calls into question, yeah, the U.S. competence in doing large scale. Um, multi-mission platform and unit power projection is great. It's just that it's the wrong tool for the time. You need to figure out you know, what's the force that needs to be deployed overseas today to better counter what the Russians and Chinese are doing today. You know, It's not a 5,000-person unit. It's a 500 or less-person unit. And does that mean that, that those changes, therefore, are not happening because of that aversion, or is it just they're happening too slow for, for what needs to happen? Or like, So what's the net result there? It's exactly what you said, is they're happening too slow because you've got this intellectual realization that what seems to work better in war games and analyses is this more distributed force of smaller units uh, rather than this force of a relatively small number of large things. That shift seems to be more effective in every analysis we've done. But uh, those intellectual you know, understandings then have to be translated into hard decisions where you have to accept that maybe I'm going to buy one fewer aircraft carrier, or I'm going to uh, take a brigade combat team off the table. And those shifts are not very attractive to people that have kind of built their whole career around, you know, leading and, and managing these larger force elements. I see. And you've, you've talked about, um, something called persistent engagement, which I think is more on the cyber side of the U.S. Defense Department's efforts. Um, does that factor in here at all? Can you kind of walk us through what that means and, and how that might apply to what you've just finished saying? Yeah. So uh, so what we've looked at in our um, work is the idea of how do you how do you deter or dissuade you know, a peer competitor? Because you know, I think we've thrown around the word peer competitor for a long time, but in reality, it's uh, until now, we really haven't had another country like China that actually has 
military capabilities and economic power on par with the United States. Um, so when you're up against a pure competitor, you're not going to have that ability to dominate anymore. You've got to you know, sort of use operational art to a much, you've got to be more creative and use operational art to a greater degree than you did when you were dealing with regional powers that you could dominate. Um, so uh, in that context, uh, you have to have a force that's able to be uh, employed uh, in more creative fashions, which is why we want to go, want to, go to this more distributed force. The idea behind going to a uh, force that's a larger number of smaller units means I can recompose them, you know, like uh, uh, Legos into a lot of new formations and give my opponent a lot more things to worry about, a lot more different looks, different operational concepts, different tactics. Um, whereas if I deploy only in the in the shape of a you know carrier strike group or a um, a, a traditional you know air expeditionary force, then they kind of know what that looks like. They know how it fights. They know how to prepare for it. And the Chinese have done a great job of that. So creating this this surprise, this this uh, recomposability generates surprise. That's going to be a key element of the creativity you need to deal with a pure competitor. Um, so then the question is, well, how do I how do I know what my opponent will find surprising, and then how do I operationalize that surprise? <laughs> how do I how do I spring these things on them to make them kind of always stay off balance? Um, and that's where persistent engagement comes in. So cyber command uses that approach uh, in their cyber operations. They defend forward, which is their strategy. So just for, yeah. for listeners, persistent engagement and is is what? Just just uh, you know right. tangling with with adversaries persistently? No, well, yeah. So it means uh, so they have a strategy called defend forward. And when you defend forward, you always stay uh, up in your opponent's networks. You always are operating inside your opponent's networks. You are reacting in real time to your opponent's provocations. Um, you don't let things you know happen to you and then you know say, well, we're going to deal with that later. Um, so they they respond in real time symmetrically to every provocation they get from an adversary you know adversary um, cyber operator. Uh, that persistent engagement, you know, shows one, your opponent, that you're there, that you're ready to you know, retaliate or at least uh, defend if necessary. Um, and it also gives you a better sense of what your opponent is capable of doing, what their tactics are, you know, what their levels of pain are. Um, so Cyber Command has said multiple times that this has been a very successful strategy for them in terms of better defending U.S. networks because they better understand what opponents can do. The opponents are now on notice that Cyber Command is going to be right there ready to be Johnny on the spot with a retaliation if necessary. But the downside or the, the, the challenge of persistent engagement in other domains is there's risk. Well, you risk somebody running into somebody else, people getting hurt. So you risk you know, some kind of escalation. So persistent engagement is that tool to be able to keep your opponent on notice. You and your colleague, Dan Pat, have written a ton of interesting stuff. I wanted to pull one quote from a, from a larger piece where you both wrote the following. We are reminded almost daily that our national security rests on a foundation of software. And my question is, how do you think the United States is doing in this regard? So, I mean, do you have any sense of whether we're getting enough talented computer scientists into the military to keep up? Uh, well, no, we're not. So, so I think we're, um, we've not done well in that area. And I think the DOD has got to reconcile how it's going to try to get software that is uh, maintained. Uh, up to date in the military and, and adapted to accommodate new tactics and techniques that we want to develop. And I think that's going to increasingly have to be something we rely on a commercial provider to do because they've got the scale and the proficiency to do it. Coming up, we'll talk about hypersonic missiles. 
which China successfully tested last year in a move that surprised American military and political leaders, and which contribute to what General Mark Milley, chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, has called one of the largest shifts in geostrategic power that the world has ever experienced. So the U.S. should be the leader in hypersonic weapons technology, but we're not. Um, I think, though, that a lot of the hysteria around it is overblown because um, the use of hypersonic weapons isn't necessarily symmetrically beneficial. This is Uncle Sam abroad. Let, let's shift now into something that not everybody out there is aware of, but that happens to be a huge game changer, and that is hypersonic missiles. And, and for our listeners who don't know what those are, hypersonic missiles are missiles that are maneuverable and that also travel at more than five times the speed of sound. So that's faster than Mach 5 or nearly 4,000 miles per hour. Um, and as bad luck would have it, China and Russia are significantly ahead of the United States with this extremely potent weapon. What are your thoughts, Brian, on how this new type of missile impacts our situation in terms of national defense? And, and as a follow-on, I guess, where's the U.S. in terms of research and development of hypersonics and and or countering them? So um, hypersonics are uh, a particular challenge because they're hard to defend against. For the U.S., the challenge will be um, as the Chinese and Russians deploy these weapons, which they will, the Russians have already done so, um, do we, what, are, what, do, what kind of defensive systems can we actually use to defeat them? That, that of course, means that you, you have to know where the target is. Um, yeah, and, the, and don't they, I'm sorry, don't, don't they actually corkscrew? I mean, aren't they, they're highly maneuverable, right? As they travel? Uh, well, well, but if they maneuver more, they get slower. You know, so the, huh. the, um, the trade-off always for the missile uh, designer is, well, if I want to corkscrew, if I want to do a lot of maneuvering at the end to defeat the ability of an interceptor to engage me, well, then I'm slowing down and I'm making it much more easy for other interceptors to engage me. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, there's a trade-off there. And I think that that's something that defenders have been able to exploit. Uh, yeah, but it does mean that you pretty much have to – you could defend a thing that is a known target, you know, so a ship. Is a, is a great example of that. Um, maybe particular parts of a airbase, you know, might be a good example of that where you kind of know it's a target. You can put some, co-locate some defensive systems like the SM-6 or the, the, uh, the pack, uh, rather the, um, rolling airframe missile there, and you can engage those hypersonic weapons potentially. Um, and if, uh, the hypersonic weapons are expensive, you know, like the initial versions of hypersonic weapons are in the, you know, tens of millions of dollars. So you're generally not going to have a lot of them. And therefore, an adversary is going to probably want to use them on the most lucrative targets. So that in the near term, you know, that could be a way to address them mm -hmm. because you're and, not likely to use them as an area attack weapon. And and just on that broader question of how this th this missile type affects our situation, though, being that we are behind and Russia and China have them, you know, is it is it a... Um, you know, to what extent is it alarming? It seems like, uh, you know, everybody from the Joint Chiefs on down is rather alarmed. What would you say there? So uh, I guess it's alarming that we're behind just because it seems like the U.S. Well, the, the U.S. should definitely be further ahead in hypersonic technology because these missiles are based on missiles that the U.S. originally developed during the Cold War. So the Pershing II and some of those intermediate range ballistic missiles had a lot of these characteristics. So the U.S. should be the leader in hypersonic weapons technology, but we're not. Um, I think, though, that a lot of the hysteria around it is overblown because um, the use of hypersonic weapons isn't necessarily symmetrically beneficial, you know, meaning it's not as beneficial for the U.S. force to have hypersonic weapons as it is for the Russians and Chinese. 
uh, because the U.S. has to, is an expeditionary force. So we create a lot of very lucrative, um, you know, concentrated targets that for the adversary are relatively you know, good for shooting hypersonic weapons at. So ships, air bases, uh, you know, maybe some ground formations, all are very lucrative targets for a hypersonic weapon because they're concentrated. Um, because we're the expeditionary force, we have to carry everything with us. So we generally are not spread out. Like you see the Russian forces around Ukraine, how spread out they can be. Um, you know, hypersonic weapons for the United States don't really make nearly as much sense for our, because our opponents are generally spread out in a way that um, you know, we, would, we wouldn't really be able to take advantage of hypersonic weapons. We wouldn't have enough of them to be able to engage all the targets that have to be engaged. And none of those targets individually is so lucrative that it makes sense to, to, to attack it with a you know, 15 to $50 million hypersonic weapon. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there's an asymmetry there where the benefit of hypersonic weapons really goes to the, the actor that um, has the more uh, distributed force who's going up against a less distributed force. Um, again, this, this is another reason why the U.S. military should be more distributed because it'll present less or less lucrative targets. You know, more targets, but each of them is individually less lucrative. So right. uh, it's going to be less beneficial for the opponent to launch hypersonic weapons at you. So, so I think some of the hysteria about hypersonic weapons reflects this mirror imaging that, well, you know, if they've got them, we should have them. <laughs> uh, when in reality, uh, we need to focus on hypersonic defense a lot more because that's where we really are going to gain the most benefit. Regarding the South China Sea, it's obviously been a huge focal point for years. And, you know, it's they're very important sea lanes there in terms of global commerce. And China continues to make it obvious that they don't want us there, uh, literally building islands for military purposes, smack dab in the middle of the sea. Uh, and, and um, you know, they've made it clear that they have every intention of displacing us and clamping down on free passage uh, through that very important maritime zone. Um, is there any way in your view that things could play out other than, uh, you know, the collision course that that seems to put us on? Uh, oh, yeah. I think that, you know, the Chinese um, are being more sophisticated than we've seen with the Russians, where they're they're using this as a tool to sort of put pressure on their neighbors to say, we can continue to squeeze you in lots of different ways um, that don't require us to create, you know, video footage for CNN of people getting attacked in the street, you know, so right. there's lots of ways they can pressure China, their, their neighbors, like the Philippines, like the Indonesia, like Japan. Um, so I think there's, there's, I think what, from China's perspective, they see they have multiple paths to achieve their objective of being the regional hegemon in the Western Pacific. Uh, so, so one path could be, they just start to uh, impose some kind of uh, restrictions on movement through the South China Sea, and they require people to check in, you know, like mm -hmm. an aid is in the South China Sea. Um, they could, uh, you know, go to, like they have been doing, pressure their neighbors to give in on territorial claims. You know, so there's lots of ways you could play out that don't involve, you know, a military confrontation between the U.S. and China. Um, I think the U.S. could do a much better job of pushing back on that, which gets back to our original discussion on persistent engagement of, you know, if you don't you know, give in to these demands on the part of the Chinese and show, you know, it, it's more than just freedom of navigation operations. It's actually going in, you know, maybe you know, using some electronic warfare against these islands or it's you know, preventing the maritime militia from actually physically cutting off access to these reefs. So that requires you to engage with your opponent uh, in ways that could risk, you know, some slight escalation. Um, those are the ways that the U.S. is going to start to, you know, cut options off from China. But right now, China feels like it's got a lot, lot of options on the table and it's just going to continue to, you know, 
pursue them until uh, one of them pays off, you know, right. advantageously. Would you say, though, that it seems that there's a higher likelihood of escalation than de-escalation in the South China Sea? Uh, yeah, I think there you're likely to see, you know, kind of a slow ratcheting up. Yeah, I think yeah. China is going to be trying yeah. to be very measured about how it does it, but they're going to, you know, calibrate that based on the U.S. response. Right before Putin invaded Ukraine, the Pentagon reported that there had been yet another near collision between a U.S. aircraft and a Russian aircraft over the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and maybe that goes back to the earlier discussion about persistent engagement and things along those lines. But, um, you know, I think the press reported that it was only five feet apart. What should we do or can we do when that happens? So I think what we're seeing on the Russians' part is they're trying to be provocative. I think they're trying to form a persistent engagement. They're trying to uh, push the U.S. and see you know, what the U.S.'s risk tolerance is and what its limits are. Uh, and by consist- consistently doing these uh, close passbys, either of ships or other aircraft, um, they're hoping to kind of brush back the U.S. and you know make the U.S. think, well, the, the Russians are acting in, a, in an irresponsible manner. Therefore, we need to hold back and, and move even further back. And I think mm-hmm. you know that's that's a strong that's a that's a you know maybe an effective strategy on the Russians' part uh, if the U.S. is continuing to be risk averse in the way that it has been. Um, just two more questions. You co-authored an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about a month ago, in which you noted that. Russia, China, and Iran were holding joint naval drills in the Indian Ocean. What, if anything, should we do or can the United States do next time those types of joint naval drills happen? We just have to kind of uh, look on or do you, do you have any kind of thoughts there? Well, I think, you know, we, I mean, in some ways, we really can't do anything about preventing joint naval drills between, you know, potential adversaries or between actual adversaries. Uh, but what the U.S. can't do is do a better job of uh, monitoring, interacting um, with those those drills, you know, showing the fact that we are capable of pulling together even better coalitions of forces. So I think we kind of you know, have to respond. You can't let um, you know the narrative be that the the Chinese, the Iranians, the Russians are all working together in ways that you know somehow make them you know stronger as a group. I think we need to show you know that we've got the same kind of coalition capabilities, and that actually our coalitions are uh, more effective. Um, And before we wrap up, let's stick with the Middle East for a moment. Um, We know that Saudi Arabia is now actively manufacturing its own ballistic missiles with the help of China. Um, So essentially, China is helping the Saudis master nuclear technologies. How should the United States interpret that, especially in view of the fact that on, on many levels, historically anyway, the US and Saudi Arabia have been very close allies. So do we have any leverage there? Do we have to just accept the fact that uh, Saudi Arabia wants to build a nuclear capacity and China's going to help them do it? I mean, what are your broad thoughts on on the China-Saudi Arabia situation? Right. Well, I think that, that that gets to the point I made early on about um, does the U- U.S. needs to decide how it wants to approach the Middle East in the context of the Abraham Accords. You know, So they, the U.S. has sort of started down the road of having a uh, de facto alliance between the U.S., Israel and South and the Arab countries. Um, you know, so not a formal alliance in the sense of NATO, but a, a you know, coalition of the willing, if you will, that mm-hmm. a group of countries that are like-minded and made some agreements with regard to how they're going to share military capabilities uh, and defend one another um, in, in theory. So I think the U.S. You know, needs to decide, are, are we going to embrace this and move forward with it? Meaning we should be trying to get Saudi Arabia to do technology sharing with the United States rather than with China which might mean the United States has to agree to sponsor Saudi Arabia 
having a nuclear capability under IEA, EA, you know, uh, regulations. So they have to have the, you know, the protocols in place that allow them to do it in a legal way. Um, but I think that's what the U.S. has got to think about is stepping in as, a, as an alternative supplier of that nuclear capability uh, under the context of this Abraham Accords that, that's been set up over the last few years. I see. Great. Well, um, we've covered a lot and, and I want to thank you for your time and uh, for your perspective. It's been very interesting. Thank you very much, Brian. Uh, thank you, Greg. It was great to be here. That was Brian Clark from Hudson Institute. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Uncle Sam Abroad, your podcast source for informative conversations with true experts about how the United States is moving its chess pieces on the world stage. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And remember, the more that we as Americans know about American foreign policy and how we're conducting ourselves overseas, the better.